to enjoy life. You have one chance and you have one heart. And if you carry all that hatred in your heart, you're preventing yourself that happiness that life is all about. You should just enjoy life, enjoy what life has to offer. And for me personally, there is nothing better in life than the laughter of a child, than to be able to pay it forward and help somebody in need, to watch them find that inner spirit and inner life again. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of A Contagious Smile, where every smile tells a story. I am Victoria, and with us today is a wonderful individual who has over 30 plus years in law enforcement under his belt. This is prior police chief. We're just going to call him Chief Ed. How are you doing, Ed? I'm doing great today. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you so much for working in and getting in even earlier than we had you scheduled for today. I really do appreciate it. Happy to accommodate. So I have been reading all about you and I am just fascinated being that I have um, myself and my family both have law enforcement background is that you went into a community and an area that really didn't fit your norm and you made a tremendous difference. Can you start and tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. Um, I became chief in a city, a small urban city about 40 miles west of Boston called Fitchburg. And at the time I went in was the year 2002. And at that time, the city was really going through a very tough trans transformative time. Um, in a very violent time uh, with drugs and violent crime. And we had a murder rate uh, higher per capita than the city of Boston, our capital. And also, unfortunately, most of the high murder rate was occurring in our Latino population. And coinciding with that, we had a dropout rate in our Latino community in our high school of over 40%. That's a lot. That's a really yeah, yeah. And uh, I was brought in as chief, and I was uh, given a mandate to uh, create a war on crime and drugs, um, which uh, turned out to be uh, uh, kind of a really false idea of how to solve a problem. But that's maybe a little bit of another story, but. Anyway, what we did do is we formed a drug task force. We stepped up our drug enforcement, uh, search warrants that we put out there, seizing all kinds of properties and hundreds more drug raids than we had done the previous year. Uh, I think we did over the next couple of years, something like six or 700% more drug raids and all types of similar enforcement measures in all different areas. And after that time period, there was no significant drop in crime. It was just basically being displaced. Right. So um, around that time, um, a wonderful, brilliant, young Latina woman came to meet me in my office one day. And she had come from the city of Chelsea and she was a uh, street worker. And she was devoted, her and her friend Jason were devoted, and they were hired actually by Mount Wachusett Community College through a, uh, through a Kellogg grant to come in and do what they could to 
promote the success of Latino students in our high school in the region to improve things. And she came to meet me at my office because she was forming a task force and her prior experiencing working with police was not good, but she felt she had to touch the base. Right. And when she came to see me, I reached, I, she introduced herself and I said to her, I asked her a question and I said, you know, I've been reaching, trying to find somebody in your community in the Latino community to talk to. And, you know, why is the crime so high? And, you know, where are the fathers? Who can I talk to to help get help? And she said, what are you doing about it? And I said, what do you mean? She says, well, you're the one with all the power. You have the guns. You have the cars. You have all the money. What are you doing about it? And I kind of sat back in my chair. And rather than get defensive about it, Right. She thought I would be. I said, thank you for talking to me. And we kind of let the, we let our defenses down. And we went into this discussion about, we were both systems thinkers. Mm -hmm. I had learned about this philosophy or this way of learning when I was taking courses in Suffolk. And she had been taught by a mentor, um, Peter Senge from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I had learned it through Suffolk University. And basically it's a philosophy or a learning process that you can use to get at the root causes of crime. So we both were able to look or to begin a discussion as to why crime was really, really occurring. Mm And at that time, we had a newspaper that was very, very uh, critical of the city and all the crime that was going on. And obviously, when reporting it, it had the Latinos portrayed as really almost like monsters in the community because they were always the ones who were being held responsible. Right. And, you know, the assumptions it was creating was that these were the people that were causing all the problems. So the newspaper called me one day and they said, you know, we'd like to put a program together, you know, for uh, some type of uh, event for the summer for kids or something like that. Uh, Would you be willing to do that? And I said, yeah, sure. So I ended up speaking with my friend. Her name was Syra Pinto. And I says, why don't we get hire a professional trainers to come in to train a task force in our community of all the, well, let's say not just major players, but significant leaders in the community. And we identified 40 people, including minorities for the first time. And we trained them in a two or three day process in the process of systems thinking. Mm -hmm. And then we had the program facilitated, the training facilitated by these professionals. And we broke up and did discussions. And after two and a half days, well, actually three days, we came out with the conclusions. And a young Spanish individual got up and said, I want to report out on our findings. And he said, 
we found that the root causes of racism, uh, excuse me, of crime in our community are systemic racism and lack of economic opportunity for at-risk kids. And this was in 2005. Wow. And immediately, three white leaders in the community, one, the publisher of the newspaper, and two, universe, one university president, one college president, stood up one after the other and said, we are not going to discuss racism. And then I stood up as the white police chief right. and said, we are going to discuss racism. Good for you. And Syra told me later, you know, you took your power and you spoke the truth that day. Mm-hmm. So that was a turning point. And we began having discussions after that, some people dropped out, but we had discussions about racism and we went on and talked a lot about it in the coming weeks. We also, one of the things that I did in my police department was I had a lot of money I would get from these drug deals and cars and houses. And I would, in all police departments would use that money to supplement their workforce for enforcement And instead, I took a significant amount of that money and I used it to create jobs. Good for you. And and other agencies, other than police, put money in the kitty too. And we created all kinds of jobs for kids that were at risk that were identified. That's fantastic. So after the summer, we saw a decrease in crime for the first time. And I actually, when I did it as police chief, that pool of money, I didn't have to have anybody's approval because it wasn't taxpayers' money. So I never told anybody because I probably would have been vilified for it. Sure. You know, but uh, anyway, so after I left, the new mayor came in. She was a mayor of color. And I spoke to her many times. And she basically said, Ed, I continued your work. And to this day, we have a, a good police chief. Um, He's been there for about seven years. Fitchburg has the most diverse or one of the most diverse police departments in the state. Many police departments cannot find candidates right now because of the atmosphere. And Fitchburg is, they're still lining up to get in. And the list is really headed by minorities that want to get on the department. So, um, and again, you know, I talked about the ending results that we've had today, today, Last year in Fitchburg, there was one murder and the dropout rate has gone down below 8% for Latino students. That is fantastic. Well, I think it's a model um, that could be replicated. Absolutely. And uh, I think it's a non-traditional way to go about doing things. Um, But, um, you know, it's... uh, it made such a huge difference. Yeah, well, it's... And let, me, let me ask you, as a, as a parent as well, I have cringed every time I hear about a school shooting. Because when I was in school, the only thing we had to worry about was dodgeball and, you know, the monkey ball bars and, you know, and never, ever have I had to worry about anything like that. And I have uh, volunteered in years prior on the special needs campus and classes <clears throat> and they're taught per se what to do. I don't think it's 
to a level where they should be taught. Um, I don't think that the schools are doing anything that they should. I mean, as, if I was a teacher, I would use even my own money because that's, you know, your life and the life of the kids and buy certain things that could be done to protect their kids and in the classrooms and <clears throat> especially in the special needs classes because some of them cannot be quiet. There's nothing that they can do about it. And every time you turn around, there's multiple, multiple shootings. Like we just heard of another mall shooting um, last night and I heard in Atlanta, there was seven shootings at seven different locations overnight. Then there was one in another city. Then there, you know, you're talking about the Texas shooting where the guy shot and killed his grandmother. Then he gets out of his truck and walks to the school with carrying his weapon. And then the police take an hour to gain entry and these poor kids, and there's one child, I, I just, I don't know his name, and I just wish I could give him and his family a hug. He covered himself in his friend's blood and played dead for three hours in order to live. And where would he learn this? This is an elementary grade age child. <clears throat> Excuse me. And no matter how many times you hear, it doesn't get easier. It's heart-wrenching. And now, you hear their shootings in the grocery store, their shootings everywhere you go. Um, you know, in the teen talk series that I do, I ask the teens, you know, well, how do they feel about it? What would they do? Do you know, what do you think about gun control and gun laws? I carry everywhere I go, everywhere. Um, my husband carries, you know, we have our permits as well, but we always carry. And the thing is, is what do you think we need to be doing to protect our children in the school because that they should be worried about their education not their life when they enter in the doors well um i, I live in massachusetts to start with so we've always had a um a different perspective on guns and gun safety it, and I, it's really interesting that you bring that topic up uh i had a discussion today with someone and an interesting perspective came up when I grew up, you know, uh, in the 60s, I remember <clears throat> guns were not political yeah. in any way, shape or form. I remember being a teenager and I can remember my good friend, my best friend, you know, loved hunting season. You know, he had a shotgun and I'd go out with him and I'd skeet shoot with him. And, you know, it was like going out to play baseball. Right. It was just fun. And um, there was politics was never even an outward mentioned word. You know, it, it wasn't even considered, you know, and we had fishing gun clubs and, you know, it was something you, you did. You had a good time. You went home and nobody ever talked about it after that. Um, I think the political, in my opinion, the politicization of the right to carry guns has taken this way beyond sanity and um i don't know how you put that genie back in the bottle now um you know I, my own opinion is we've created a culture where guns are being used to solve problems now mm -hmm. and uh whether or not you're a good guy or a bad guy gun is a problem solver so people are going to you know, bad people are going to run to that because that's an easy way to solve a problem now, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I think, you know, when I talked about systems thinking, 
you know, you can actually sit down and go over it historically. Why, what happened here, you know, right. you know? and uh, why did it get this way? You know, and some people will trace it back all the way to the civil rights movement. What else happened in the 60s? The civil rights movement. All right. All right? And <clears throat> what happened when that happened? Black people got rights back. Right. What's happened today when people are getting, are getting their rights and other people have a fear that they're losing? Everybody arms up, you know, but you still have people like yourself who go out there or maybe, you know, decide that they love guns for the sake of, you know, the sport of it, maybe. Right. So that's just my take on it. Um, you know, I had a wonderful experience to work in for a short while in Oxford, England, with the Thames Valley police, and they didn't have guns. And, you know, they look at us like we got two heads. Really? Yeah, they don't need guns. They don't want guns. You know, and and then I said to him, well, what happens if something really violent happens? He says, well, while I'm out here driving around with you, we do have a car that has guns in the back trunk, you know, like probably a high powered rifle or something. And if we really, really, really had to use it, it's there. Right. But we don't have a culture or the laws that allow this to you know, to escalate like that. How can we make our schools safer? Uh, uh, I think the only, you know, I think the only thing we can do is, I think we have to, unfortunately, we got into this situation through politics and I think we're going to have to peck away at it a little at a time. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. It's just it's an incredibly scary situation. Do you believe that the video games that these teenagers are playing contribute to the violence? I think it, I think it probably it doesn't help, but I'm a root cause analysis person. Right. And those are just pieces. Those are not the root cause. Mm-hmm. And I really think that if you dig down honestly, and that's the beauty of doing a, a systems analysis, you're not looking for a right wing or a left wing solution. You're looking for the right thing. And if, when you do that, you get rid of the assumptions and what we call mental models, what we think it is. Right. And uh, I, think this, I think it's going to be a lot of that I win or you win and I think I'm losing. And I think that's what's escalated this whole thing. I have a specialty of working with survivors of domestic violence and other forms of abuse. And I know you have extensive, extensive training in this area. Could you talk to my survivors and give them maybe some encouragement, some words of advice. I hear so often that the law enforcement really isn't on their side. They're not doing anything to to make them feel safe. I mean, here we have the former chief. So, you know, we couldn't get any better than that. And I'm really hoping that you could provide them some insight, maybe some comfort as well. Well, I think there's basic truisms that don't change over time. I think uh, one, um, you have to, number one, put your safety and your children's safety first. Um, I used to, you know, it's been a while since I've been in the field, but, you know, I used to always tell people, um, pack a bag, always have it ready to go. 
you know, have someone that you can call immediately that can either come and get you or that you can go to that you can rely on immediately. Um, uh, if you have to call the police, uh, be adamant for your safety. And if the police officer doesn't like it, too bad. Okay. And don't be afraid to call the police department again. Talk to the officer in charge if you have to. Okay. Um, it's your safety. And you're the only one in the bottom line. They give you a restraining order and all those things. That's a piece of paper. And it's a wonderful promise and everything else. And, but it doesn't, it's not worth what's written on it if someone is out to get you so um yeah I, you know the most important thing to me is you know you got to have somebody that you can go to in case something happens you know right because it is such a dangerous situation when you go in there you know my my background with my abuser is he was active military and because some of the abuse happened on it on the actual installation in front of his command, they didn't do anything. They covered up for each other. <clears throat> I had the restraining order on the civilian side. I had the protective order, the TPO. I got permanent restraining order. The rights terminated from my daughter to, from him. Um, but you know, they look at it like it's a piece of paper. But it's a tr it's a trail. And I keep reminding them, you know, to get as much evidence and that there are some things that you can say to the law enforcement officers. But it really does feel from a, a Point of view of the victim, I hate the word victim, but that we are the ones who have to continually prove our truth because we're the ones that are getting interrogated time and time again. I keep trying to tell them to reiterate that they're in fear of their life, they're in fear of the life of their children, that they feel that they're in danger. Um, you know, I know that the two officers take them separate. It's also one of the most dangerous calls for an officer to go on because they're walking in blind and they don't know what they're walking into. So <clears throat> With that being said, it's a, it's an unsafe environment for everybody. I could tell you uh, a little story about a domestic violence call that escalated uh, into an area that I had no idea what happened. But um, when I was a police chief in a city before I went to Fitchburg, um, I had just taken over this job. It was a small city. And I was there for a short while and I got a call uh, in the night that we had a murder. A woman had been murdered in a, uh, like a housing complex. And I went in to work in the morning and I decided to go to the scene of the crime. And uh, I went to this complex and I went in up the stairs and was outside the apartment and walked into the apartment and the apartment in its entirety was charred black. And uh, I soon found out that what happened was my officers had gone to this apartment because there was a domestic dispute going on. And there was a woman uh, and her boyfriend had an argument. And um, she... Uh, was yelling at him and he was yelling back and uh, there were potato chips all over the floor and she had a mark on her neck. And uh, 
according to the officers that were there, um, she asked if he asked, they asked if he hit her and she said no. And uh, finally they said, well, you know, they asked the guy, this is, we'll give you a ride. We'll take you out of here. So that's how they handle it. Well, he went back later. He had a key to the place, opened it up, set a fire inside the place and killed her. Uh, so when I went into the apartment, I went into the bedroom. Her, she had been removed already. And the whole bedroom was black, except the sheets of the blankets had been pulled back. And there was a white imprint on the black sheets of her body. That's all that was left. And uh, I was looking at it and it just, I'll never forget that for the rest of my life. And I went back to the police station and I'm sitting in my chair and I'm thinking, ah, what could, you know, what should have been done differently here? You know, so I, I had the officers come in that worked the night before and I said, what happened? Well, you know, you know, we talked to her and blah, blah, blah. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, she's got a mark on her neck. You know, you couldn't, you know, re-question her and figure it out and give a, you know, and also in our law in Massachusetts at the time, all you need is a good faith effort. It's not even probable cause. You know, if you believe you're protected under our law. So he, they could have taken him into custody. You know, it was a little bit of a, it wasn't even a stretch. You know, I would have taken him into custody if it was me that night, you know? So Anyway, um, things move on and uh, an opportunity for a grant came up and I had a grant writer that was brilliant and uh, we got a very competitive grant. It was called Community Policing to Combat Domestic Violence. And I decided to use a different kind of approach. I um, partnered with um, the Battered Women's Association that we were with. Uh, and we brought in a, uh, an advocate to work in the police department. And this was back in the 90s. So there wasn't, it was just starting to begin like that. We'd had the teen dating violence courses with, done in the schools. And then the third thing we did was we partnered with the emergency room nurses. I became part of a task force that did a study and found out the number one reason women were going to the emergency room in the region was because of domestic violence. And that became my mandate working in that city was domestic violence. And as it turned out for a lot of different other reasons, I ended up working a program for the U S state department. And I took that model and used it from Siberia, Russia, all the way down to Odessa, Ukraine. Wow. Yeah, all over the Yeah. That part of the world. Yeah. yeah. That's where I worked with all those trainers. I brought them to cities all over the place. Yeah. You should definitely be speaking, helping other law enforcement officers, <clears throat> really, because I was getting interrogated. And maybe you could give I'll give you a little scenario of what I went through it, and you could give some insight. Maybe this would make some survivors feel like maybe they've got some answers. I was strangled and they, there was, I still have the pictures, clear handprints where his thumbs were here and then his fingers were here, back here. 
So that's, that's a sign he's going to kill you. Right. I, I blacked out the blood vessels in my eyes burst. He broke the bone in my neck. Um, oh. And so with that being said, and, and the pictures, Ed, were as clear as day. There, you could see the two thumbprints. You could see the handprints. <clears throat> and when we took it, I took it to the Sorry. command. Thank you. When I took it to the command first, they told me that I had done that myself. And I said, well, wait a minute. You put your own hands here. How, how do you do that when right here are two thumbprints? And then here's the hand. How do, you, how do you do that to yourself? And as the victim at that moment, I am fighting not only for my life. I'm in life or fight or flight. And now I'm having to explain how I have this on my neck. And I, how, you can't do that to yourself. And all of my photographs matched my medical records that coincided with everything. And I'm still getting interrogated as to, well, you must have done that to yourself. I mean, how do you how do you do that? And then you have a law enforcement officer come in and they're just like, what did you do to make him mad? And, you, and that is something that you hear a lot. That's I a mean, double victim. You're being double victimized. Right. So then what do you do? What do you say? A lot of women at that point don't want to keep calling the police because they feel like they're getting, you know, assaulted all over again. You are. So then what advice do you give them? Um, I think you have to have someone. Um, first of all, you have to arm yourself with information and work with people like you. They're going to tell you the truth. Thank you. Okay? Because that's what you need. You need to be informed, number one. Um, have you ever heard of the concept of a family justice center? I have. Okay. That's I'm sure a, our you, listeners have not, but I have. If you get a chance that you should visit one sometime, if they have one close by, uh, it's a phenomenal concept. Um, matter of fact, one of the last things I did when I retired from working with the State Department was I brought a family justice center to a country in Moldova in Eastern Europe. Wow. And uh, they're still in the process of putting it all together. Uh, but there is a, we have one here in Boston. And basically what it is, it's an independent facility. Uh, it's run in our state by the Department of Public Health. It's manned or employed with, police officers, social workers. Um, oh, man. Uh, uh, advocates. Advocates. Um, they got people there that can help you get kids in school, uh, people that work in housing. It's a one-stop shopping, mm -hmm. okay? And when you do the intake, you get a social worker, Okay. And that social worker, the goal is you tell your story one time. And that person assesses you and goes to all those other departments that are under that one building and takes care of all your issues. All right. And one of the things at the end of the tour, when I was there, they brought me into an area. It was a boutique. And it was a uh, it was, for lack of a better word, a store, a boutique of women's clothing and accessories. Yes, we, and, we do that um, 
I do that every year. So we, we work with a house here and do that for them right. every year. And this place is in Boston. It's called Dress for Success. And they get women that work in some of the best stores to volunteer. And they bring the women in and they dress them to the nines or they dress them for business or for court appearances or whatever it is they need to do. But it's a, it's a phenomenal success, mm-hmm. you know, and it has, you know, as you know, cause you've been through it. There are so many different layers of issues that you have to go through when you're, when you're victimized like this. Yes. And one of them is retelling your story. So it's a fabulous model. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Tell us some of your background with the whole domestic violence. How did you go in and get more training? What made you just feel like this was such a special area that you really wanted to help in? That's uh, interesting. I talk about it in the book. Uh, my experience with it, uh, my father was a World War II veteran. And he had a very uh, tough time during the war. Um, he was captured by the Germans and, you know, he was, went through torture and all that stuff. And he came back and uh, today they call it PTSD, uh, but there was no treatment. He went to work and uh, extremely, extremely angry man and uh, very explosive temper. And, you know, and then he would hit my mother and, but he'd do it when we weren't around. You know, uh, I see my mother with a black eye and that's, you know, what's going on. And, you know, and it would become a situation where as soon as my father come home, I was gone. You know, I, I grew up outside. And, uh, so, you know, I didn't, I grew up in that kind of an environment. So I remember when I was in the police academy, um, this was at before they passed the domestic violence laws. And I remember the guy talking about uh, domestic violence. I didn't even call it that then. And he said, well, our laws about family disputes is we're based on English common law. All right. The man's home is his castle. What happens when you get into a man's house is his business. All right. And you have no right to arrest him before they pass these laws. And when I got out of, and I remember sitting there and I raised my hand and I said, sir, that doesn't really seem right. And there was this recruit, this bully around me was behind me saying, shut up and put your hand down. That's the way it is. So I did. And uh, I'm back out on the, you know, graduate from the academy. I'm out on the street. And a year or so later, I'm at a call with a woman on Thanksgiving evening. And uh, I go to her apartment and her head is split wide open because she had been thrown onto the ground and she hit her head on an iron radiator and split it open. So she had this towel around her head that was soaked with blood. And her husband was screaming at me to get the F out of her house, out of his house. And you have no right to be in here. And he was right. I didn't. And I knew, you know, this is like bizarre. Right. You know, this is like going nowhere. So that was kind of my whole introduction to this whole thing, you know. And then, you know, times begin to change. The restraining orders came and then eventually the right to arrest. And then I went to 
the university, Massachusetts, to get a bachelor's degree. And I went to a really good school and I got mentored by one of the biggest and best academics in the field of domestic violence, a woman um, called, uh, her name was Eve Mazawa, who had written many books on the subject and she really educated me on it. So uh, yeah, that's kind of how I began it. And, uh, and, you know, understood and began to understand what kind of damage it does to the point where I did it even with the state department, I did programs on it and understand that to the level that when that happens, especially in the poorer countries, that destroys the development of the country. Right. right. When people are press, oppressed, the country cannot develop. You know, the country is trying to survive with one hand tied behind its back. Absolutely. So it's a development issue. Right. But but that's. What do you say to the women or men? Because men get abused too. And I get a lot of feedback negatively about that because they're like, well, you were abused by a man. I wasn't abused by all men. Men are, you know, men are victims too. I, I don't have tunnel vision just for a woman. It's, you know, men, women, children. What do you say to those individuals who are married into law enforcement and they're going through it? Any advice and suggestions to them at this point who are going through it and maybe they go to their spouse's command and are not given the right um, information that makes them feel safe? What can they do at that point? Um, Spouses that are married to law enforcement. Uh, I think that's a... um, in my experience, a very insidious problem. And I think it's a lot um, more happening than people think. Um, And I think that police officers uh, don't wanna, they don't wanna rat on each other. You know, uh, one of the things that good policers do is police officers have is they have a good intuitive sense of what's going on in situations. Um, they may not see it. People may not tell them, but you know, this is what they do for a living. Um, you know, um, I have seen cases where that has been the effect. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, uh, you know, if a man or, or a woman, you know, I think they definitely should, um, be able to go to the supervisor or go to the chief. I had a case where there was a situation like that going on. And uh, the wife called me and I told her what to do. I, you know, I treated her just like any other victim, get a restraining order, the whole nine yards. And, and I remember the officer coming in my office and basically, you know, you don't back up your men and all this other bullshit. And, you know, too bad. You know, that's not what I'm there for. I'm there to protect people. Um, but yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's a, it's a tough, tough problem, but, um, you know, you have to, uh, you know, you have to speak up. You do have to speak up. And you've been absolutely just a plethora of resources and I can't thank you enough for all that. Tell my listeners where all they could find you if they wanted to get in touch with you. Okay. Website. It's, uh, justpolicing.org and I my email is ed at justpolicing.org. 
do you have any other social media accounts? No, not right now. Uh, <laughs> I do have a Facebook account. Um, I am on Facebook, but I don't have it. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to send you a friend request on Facebook. Okay. That sounds great. (laughs) Now you have a book called just policing. Yeah. On Amazon. How do we get that to our readers? The digital um, copy is available on Amazon right now in, in Barnes and Noble and other sites. And I just got the proof of my hard copy two days ago. Really? Yeah, and the books are going to be mailed out on June 24th. So I will uh, be announcing uh, when it's available. Congratulations. Oh, thank, thank you, you very much. All very, very much. Do you have any last words to uh, give to our listeners this afternoon? Thank you for what you do. You're a hero. Thank you so much. Sorry. No, no, All you're right. fine. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Victoria. Thank you.